This week on Writers, Inc. Uh, you spend two and a half years. Uh, you, you read everything you can read about them. You just, you know, you kind of sift through it and see what's worth pursuing and what's not. And then you, you go out and you do the legwork. I mean, I resolved to talk to everybody I could get my hands on. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. J.D., I think we're about due for a house update. <laughs> it's actually been pretty quiet here. So we, we got the two-story garage up. Um, I'm trying to get somebody to come in and do that spray foam stuff. And I'm running into a, another problem now. Like there's actually a, like a shortage worldwide of, of spray foam. Um, and this, this comes out of Texas. I, I've researched it because I was trying to figure out how this even happens. But if you remember like last year, they had like a really bad freeze in Texas. So apparently it like completely wrecked the, the factory where this, this spray foam comes out of. So if you're waiting on furniture, you're waiting on anything that has any kind of foam in it, it's, it's all traced back to cold weather in Texas last year. Um, but yeah, that, that's on deck for, um, for December now. Um, I, I mentioned this last week, and this is kind of like a big moment in our house. My daughter finally got her first big girl bed. Um, and she's four and we, we ordered it like a year and a half ago, you know, but it just through COVID, it, it took forever to get here. From so Home now, Depot? No, not Home Depot <laughs> <laughs> and not, not Lowe's. This one actually came from, from Jordan's. Um, but we're at that, that strange place where I'm pretty sure every parent has probably been where like last night we were woken up at two 30 in the morning with our daughter standing next to the bed, you know, all paranormal activity, like <laughs> you know, just standing over us and, and going, I have to pee. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, so, my my daughter's seven and still ends up in our room every single night. So oh just, man, don't tell me that. <laughs> yes, we we have a pallet next to the bed, next to our bed where she will come and she ends up in there sometime usually between like two and five in the morning. Oh. So she woke me up at four thirty today, uh, on because she actually got up in our bed and kept moving, and I couldn't go back to sleep after that. So I just got up and started writing. Well, we had a lot of people who gave us a hard time because we waited so long to take her out of her crib, but like she liked her crib and, and she could, you know, at that point she could get out of it anytime she wanted to. She could you know, monkey right over that, the side of the railing. Um, but one of the cool things about her being a little bit older is she went into the store with us and she picked out the bed that she wanted and she got this really cool bunk bed that's got like stairs going up to the top and it's got like a little hidden room underneath on the bottom. So it's like of a really, course. you know, like I want it. It's, it's a nice, nice bed. <laughs> you put <laughs> but, your writing space under there. Yeah. It's, it's got twinkle lights going on in there. It's cool. Um, but like she likes it so much that she doesn't want to wet the bed, you know, so like that's why she's getting up and, and she's telling us all this, you know, which is kind of cool. My wife actually talked her into knocking on her door, which is kind of neat. So at, at 2.30, even though like the first time she was just standing there, you know, every other time that it's happened, she's actually knocked on her bedroom door before she's come in, which I guess is, is kind of a, a step up. Still freaks you out, you know, at 2.30 in the morning <laughs> to hear somebody pounding on your door, but still kind of nice. Um, you know, we should probably talk about this Hugh Howey special edition, you know, before we move on to any thing like how awesome was that yeah. um and, and i just i can't imagine you know being hugh and walking through these sets and and seeing you know his story just coming coming to life and especially sets like on, on that scale 
So it, you know, I think he had mentioned um, it, it's going to be on Apple TV, right, or Apple Plus. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's some. I'm not exactly sure because I knew like AMC is involved somehow, right? Isn't like a, a joint AMC Apple Plus kind of thing? So I, I don't know exactly. And it, it's, I mean, it's a good year and a half to two years out, so I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll know in plenty of time. But uh, yeah, it seems. I mean, f- the way he's talking about it. It's it's massive, like it, the whole the whole set and the the story world and the team that's working on it. It just sounds like an incredible experience. Yeah, well, I, I can weigh in on a little bit of that. I, a lot of times, the studios that are involved aren't necessarily the networks that are are behind it. Like they're they're separate divisions. So A and E might be producing their AMC or whoever he said um, might be creating it. They might be a, a partner there. Um, Apple could be too, and it could still end up on a on a totally different network depending on who actually buys it. So that that's all a little little weird. Um, the the thing that he had mentioned that I thought was kind of cool is it sounds like they built the the staircase, and he had mentioned real briefly like hanging over the side using an iPad, and that's one of the coolest features I've actually seen recently where they they take you know more or less the CGI framework and they can dub it into the real world, and you can use augmented reality to actually see what the end product is going to look like. Um, so the directors can kind of walk through the set and they can see you know the set a hundred percent, you know whereas if you don't have that iPad in front of you and you're, you're looking at a blue screen or a green screen. Um, so just really cool how far the technology has evolved because if you go back just even a, a handful of years, you know, actors had to just, you know, act in front of that blank space and, and just kind of make it up. And now they've got the ability to actually kind of catch a glimpse of, of what everything's going to look like. Um, just it's really cool how the technology is evolving. But, yeah, it sounds like these sets are, are absolutely massive. Um, and this is this is going to be big. Yeah, I, it, it, he, he kind of had a, it was a little throwaway at the end there, but like. Uh, you know, announcing that Common is on the cast now, and I was like, I loved him in Hell on Wheels, and uh, I was like, oh man, that's you know that's going to be a great addition to the cast. And uh, I mean, how 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 fortunate are we to help him document this too? Like, I, I it's just such it's so cool to be part of this, and uh, you know, knowing him for so long and having him be sort of like he's he's the he's the he was the indie poster child, right? Like he he came up. Um, on his own and he's kind of done this thing and and he's such a good guy that everyone's rooting for him so it's just a great project all the way around yeah i really hope he grabs a either a camera or some kind of recorder and and just you know captures some of these interviews or people that he's speaking to on on set and then maybe we can use some of that too um, just because, you know, it's just that there's so many moving parts involved. Um, and if, if you ever get a chance to just go on a movie set or a TV set and, and see that, it, it's just insane, you know, how many people are running around. Every single person has their, their place, and they all know exactly what they're supposed to do. It, it is by far the most organized business activity I've, I've ever witnessed. Um, nobody's standing around doing nothing. Like, everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing right down to the second. And in his case, you know, like, they've, they've literally got three, it sounds like three different versions of that happening all at once, or they will at some point. You know, three different crews all filming at the same time. Um, so it's just exponentially, you know, incredible to, to watch. So yeah, yeah, I mean, he he did say because I, I offered that to him. I said, hey, if you can get some audio on your phone from anyone who's on the set who wants to talk about it, we you know we can incorporate that into the updates. And he he was like, well, there's some permission things there. <laughs> He's like, wasn't sure if he had to clear it with the studio, but he would definitely. He said he'll keep it on his radar. So who knows? Maybe we'll get some uh, we'll get some firsthand accounts from people who are working the set. Oh, best ask for forgiveness after the fact, right? <laughs> go, go ahead and do it. Oh, I didn't know any better. I'm sorry. Right. I won't yeah. do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what? anything in publishing news uh, we got going on today? I, I didn't see, I scanned the headlines. I didn't see anything major coming down the line. 
No, I've honestly been buried doing this the screenplay thing, and I haven't even looked. Um, I, I haven't heard anything though through my my normal emails. You know, nothing jumping out at me. How about uh, how about a creator dad update? How'd the launch go, man? It's been going. It went well. I've gotten some really good reactions stuff so far, um, and uh, yeah, it was is awesome. I'm just it's it's crazy because I'm just uh, even it's it's funny even at the beginning of this episode when JD brought up his daughter, I had like this moment where I'm like, am I recording creator dad right now? Because <laughs> we started talking about kids' beds and stuff. I'm so I've been so in just engulfed in that and i recorded two interviews this week i have two more next week including jd so um yeah i'm just uh it's it's going really well the the feedback has been awesome so far uh and it's yeah it's it's been a lot of fun so excellent all right well cool why don't we take care of some business and then we'll just get to the interview uh we want to give a wonderful shout out to our wonderful spart uh sponsors there at kobo writing life tara and her team are awesome uh as you guys know, if you're looking to publish a book wide, Kobo Writing Life is the place to go. Uh, you can publish internationally. You get to change your prices. Uh, you, there's monthly promotional opportunities you can be part of, and your book does not have to be exclusive. So if you're interested in that and you don't yet have your Kobo Writing Life account set up, you can do that by going to KoboWritingLife.com. We also want to give a wonderful shout out to all of our patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the Writers Inc. podcast and become part of our monthly Q&A episodes, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Writers Inc. podcast. And that brings us to our guest. Who do we got this week, J.D.? All right, so this is going to be fun. We've got Bob Spitz, um, who's a, a journalist, and he's he's been around for a while. You know, basically in the, the thick of pop, popular culture, he's written books about Ronald Reagan, the Beatles, Bob Dylan. Um, his latest book is about Led Zeppelin, um, which it must have been a fascinating book to to write. It just released on November 9th, so a day or two ago. Um, but I'm looking forward to this one. Here he is, Bob Spitz. Did you find any evidence of Jimmy Page making a deal with the devil? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Jimmy made a deal with the devil coming out of his mother's womb. To tell you. Uh, he, um, he, look, you know, Jimmy was into some pretty hairy stuff, um, and and not just later in life. From from the very time he was eleven years old, he started to read books about black magic, and so um, I, I think it was in his psyche. You know, Jimmy um, Jimmy got into some weird stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm only half joking when I ask that because uh, your new book, uh, Led Zeppelin, the, the biography, is phenomenal. We're going to get into that in, in some more detail here. But the, the documentation of the behavior specifically of Jimmy Page and John Bonham are kind of mind-blowing. And, uh, you know, John Bonham obviously didn't, didn't survive it, but Jimmy Page did. And um, just the, the drugs and the addiction, and I'm just shocked he's still here. Obviously, you've never been on the uh, road with rock and rollers. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at this level. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I've been there. I've seen it. <laughs> well, let's let's talk for a minute about that. You you had uh, back in the day. You were you were right there with uh, Springsteen and Elton John working with those guys. Uh, talk about a little bit about your your firsthand account of of the the real rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I moved to New York when I was 21 years old, and about six months later, I was working for some uh, some producers of the Partridge Family, too, if, if you can believe that. And night, two of the guys who uh, was writing music for the show ran into my office. We were there after after hours, and the door was locked, and you know 
they said, uh, you got to come out here. Uh, there's a guy out here you got to hear. Uh, and I walked out and um, there was this like rangy looking guy with a, a, a mousy girlfriend and he opens up a guitar and he played us a couple numbers and the three of us, me and my, my two friends who were the music writers, started cutting glances at each other because it was Bruce and it was Bruce in his rawest form, but perhaps his most beautiful form. And the three of us quit our jobs the next day. I mean, it was, we knew, we, we absolutely knew uh, from what we had heard. He played a couple songs for us and we thought we had heard the future of rock and roll and uh, that was it. So we signed him to Columbia Records. Uh, I was with him through the first two albums. I played with him on and off. And uh, it was exciting. It was exciting to watch someone explode like that. Uh, and when I left, um, I really left without knowing what I was going to do. And somebody called me and said, hey, there's a guy that would like to meet you to talk about representing him. And I said, uh, I don't know. I've just come off a pretty crazy uh, couple of years. He said, no, you should come meet him. It's Elton John. <laughs> I, I almost fell off my chair. I mean, when I, when I was with Bruce, we were touring and we went from gig to gig with uh, like two station wagons and a bag of Fritos, you know. <laughs> and with Elton John, um, we had our own 747. I mean, it was in, it was just, it was unbelievable. So, uh, uh, yeah, I had a good time. I really got to see rock and roll from the inside out. Wow. Wow. I, I, I don't want you to divulge any any sort of sensitive information, but uh, were, were guys like Springsteen and Elton John and, and other people of that era, were, were did they have this same, same sort of hedonistic approach that Led Zeppelin did? Well, look, you know, it's always been sex, drugs and rock and roll. I happen to have been with two guys who were the easiest people in the world. I mean, Bruce was a dream. He he. You know, he played his music and he went home at night. Uh, and this was Elton before cocaine. So I was lucky, you know. It, it, were there girls? Yeah, of course there were girls. I mean, there's always... What do you become a rock and roll player for if not for the girls? I mean, <laughs> Paul, Paul McCartney had said as much to me. We were... When I was working with him on the Beatles biography, he said, and, and you know why we got into this, don't you? And I looked at him and I went, yeah, the girls. And he went, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, if you've read the book, you know that uh, we're not we're talking about really girls with Led Zeppelin. We're not talking about young women. Yes. These were girls who were 12, 13 and 14 in many cases. And uh, it was not a pretty picture. We're talking about these young, young uh, girls who were with men who were 26 and 29. Um, you have to put that in perspective, and, and I hope I did that with the book. Yeah, you certainly did, Bob. I mean, this this book is it's riveting. Uh, it, it's no surprise given your previous work, um, which we can touch upon as well. But uh, I mean, I felt like I was there, and I think to your point, some of the escapades that were told in in this Led Zeppelin book were, to me, they 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 were more abused than I think partying. They it it, it felt that way. It felt like there was um, a gray area there that it. it maybe in, in this day and age that would have been considered abuse as opposed to partying. And, uh, and I just can't, it, it just, it seems like a relic from another time, although I'm sure that kind of stuff still happens today. Yeah. I thought I'd put it out there. I didn't want to harp on it. Um, I didn't want it to obscure the music, which I thought was fantastic, but I wanted to give you enough of a taste so that 
the reader knew what was going on and, and could and could put things together for themselves. Look, I had read Hammer of the Gods. It was one trashy story after the next. And, um, and I had heard things that I decided not to put in the book. They were just, um, they were too demeaning. Uh, but I thought I'd give you enough of a taste so that you could envision it for yourself and come to your own conclusions and know what was going on without, uh, I hate to use the, uh, the term blow by blow, but you know, let's use it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. And it, it, it's not just the sexual escapades. I mean, I think the, the story about the, uh, the private pilot flying to Chicago in the nasty weather on cocaine urged on by Peter Grant, it sort of encapsulates the, the, the drug side of it as well. Yes, yes. I, I mean, look, drugs undid this band uh, more than anything else. By the time they were uh, coming apart at the seams, uh, cocaine had really lodged itself into the the day-to-day -day process of the band, uh, as well as heroin. I mean, and, and so it's a cautionary tale to anybody um, who, who wants to understand where things can go off the rails in rock and roll. Because in the, this band had everything going for them, and it did. It went off the rails. It was, it's, it's a tragic story. I mean, you wouldn't think about a tragic story uh, of a legendary band like Led Zeppelin, but that's, that's kind of how I read it. And uh, an, another theme that I thought was really interesting that you brought up a, a number of times was this idea of Led Zeppelin being um, uh, the first heavy metal band. And I know this, that's something that typically fans of Black Sabbath talk about. So um, can you can you shed a little light on maybe what the band thought of that of that term and maybe how history is remembering them? Yeah, well, Jimmy hated the term. He right. didn't want to be called uh, heavy metal at all. But look, you got to call it what it is. Um, Led Zeppelin changed the sound and the culture of rock and roll. They turned music on its head. We were coming out of the '60s, and there was a whole '60s ethos, and we were coming out of groups like, you know, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joni Mitchell and James Taylor, um, Elton John. Uh, and, and the sound that Led Zeppelin made was completely different. I mean, not only did they turn music on its head, they moved it forward. They moved, the audiences changed. The audiences used to be young girls swooning after these guys. And now it was young guys who were aggressive. The music was aggressive. So, uh, you know, it, it, the music really, that Led Zeppelin made really reflected the tenor of the times. This was post Woodstock, post Altamont. And now we're in the seventies and things are much harder. It's a cocaine world. It's not a weed world anymore. And uh, so, um, yeah, they, they took music in a different direction. Uh, Black Sabbath certainly wasn't the first heavy metal band. Uh, there's a very funny scene in the book where they, um, John, uh, John Bonham and Robert talk about how uh, growing up in the Midlands, there was on a Saturday night, they would go and find other bands to play with. There was a, a music board where they could see who needed a drummer, who needed a singer. And, there, and so the room would clear out and guys would, Musicians would join these bands for the weekend, uh, but there were always two guys 
who were uh, left behind, who never got a gig. And that was Ozzy and Tony. <laughs> uh, and, and, and when Robert heard that there was a Led Zeppelin, uh, there was a Black Sabbath, and it was these two losers who could never get a gig, he was beside himself. He just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they hated the sound um, of um, calling it heavy metal. But, you know, if the badge, you got to wear the badge, pal. You gotta wear the badge. <laughs> well, I, I uh, you know, I, I was kind of reading this book both as a fan of Led Zeppelin and as a professional writer, and I have to say, Bob, I am just blown away by by the scope and the magnificence of the storytelling. I, I, I know this is an impossible question for you to answer, but how do you even get started on a project of this magnitude? Yeah, well, <laughs> you spend two and a half years. Uh, you, you read everything you can read about them. You just, you know, you kind of sift through it and see what's worth pursuing and what's not. And then you, you go out and you do the legwork. I mean, I resolved to talk to everybody I could get my hands on. And I spent two and a half years doing it. Uh, and I found that after a few people find that they enjoyed talking to you, they're comfortable, they felt that you were gonna treat this music well, uh, treat the, their story well, uh, that they uh, refer you to other people and it snowballs from there. And then you, you know, you do whatever any good biographer does. You, you distill it all and then you start to knit it together with what you have and, uh, and, and, and to dramatize it. Half, half of my job is, is the research and getting the facts right. But the other half of it is remembering that I need to entertain you, the reader. And I wanted to make sure that I could tell a damn good story. And I spent a lot of time, uh, and I'm glad you felt that way about it. I, I spent a lot of time trying to put you in the story, take you behind the scenes, let you feel what it was like at the rehearsals, putting the album together in their bedrooms, on the plane, so that you felt you were in the midst of the story and couldn't get out. And, and I hope I achieved that. Yeah. Masterfully. I mean, I, there, there were things as a writer, I was like, Oh, I see what you did there. That was really good. Like uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, having Steven Tyler in the prologue and then kind of wrapping up with, with Steven Tyler possibly rehearsing with the band uh, uh, after the 2008 performance. I, I was like, I love that. I love that bookend that you did there. You're one of the few people who caught that. I'm wow. so glad that, <laughs> yeah, with the same song, Train Kept a Roll, yes. which became a uh, a huge hit for uh, for Aerosmith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, some of those things, as a writer, and and you must know this, it, it falls into your lap, and you just go, I can't believe this. It just fits perfectly, and then, but you know, you have to know how to use it too. So um, yeah, you have to be responsible I, with it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It was fun. To, it was fun to write it that way. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, that, that must have been uh, so thrilling. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that uh, you talked to Paul McCartney for the Beatles biography, which is a, another wonderful uh, epic uh, story. How close did you get to any of the surviving members of Led Zeppelin for this one? Yeah, not at all. And I'll tell you why. They were all going to participate. Uh, but as I began to write, as I began to research, actually, once Me Too hit, they were told by the representatives to talk to anybody. 
So unfortunately, uh, I did not have them. And, you know, it's funny. I was moping around the house, really bummed out because I felt it was important. And um, I, I was just reading. And my wife came upon me one day and she said, what are you reading? And I said, I'm reading uh, John Adams by David McCullough. She said, good book. And I said, oh, fantastic. She said, uh, how many times did he interview Adams? And I said, <laughs> I said, what are you, nuts? I said, Adams has been dead for 250 years. She looked at me and she said, uh-huh, get to work. <laughs> and that changed everything. So I, you know, often I also knew from experience with the Beatles and, and, and others that often the main characters are the most unreliable narrators. Um, they live in a bubble. Uh, and they don't know what's going on around them except what's in their own little bubble. Um, so I was fortunate in this case that they had been on record a lot talking about what was going on in their bubble. Um, but they didn't have any idea what was going on around them. So it was up to me to find everybody else. And, uh, and I thought that um, that was a way of, of, of being able to tell the story, making you feel that everybody had spoken, even the four guys. Um, would it have been better with them? Absolutely, because I know how to talk to musicians. Uh, I, I, I hope I gave you a sense of who they were without that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, there was nothing lacking in the story for me as a fan of, of the band that uh, that they weren't included directly, because as you said, you got to you got so close to to so many of these other people who were within that orbit. So, what do you do? Like, let's. I'm assuming you sit down. Are, are you recording these interviews on video, on audio? How do the words get from their mouth into the pages of your book? Yes. Everything that I write is is recorded. Uh, and I told everybody, you know, you have to be on the record. Uh, if you go off the record, it won't be in the book. Um, and, and so um, I don't know if you saw a hard copy of the book or you just saw a, uh, an electronic version, but uh, in the back of the book, I have sourced every quote and almost every line in the whole book so that you, the reader, will know where it came from. Uh, I, I'm, I, I always do one thing, and I told you at the beginning, I, I sit down and I read all the literature on a particular band. In, in this case, and the same with the Beatles, but it, more so in Led Zeppelin, there were about 100 books on them. None of them were sourced. I mean, you don't know where these guys got this stuff from. Uh, did they make it up? You know, um, it, it's so unfair. So I felt that um, I needed to write a book where you, the reader, could go back to the, uh, the notes section behind the book and know where everything came from so that you, you'd know it wasn't bogus. Uh, I have so much respect for that. Uh, you know, I, I did a, a rock and roll fiction podcast and uh, and I sourced that, and because I felt it was important, and I uh, I got an un, uh, advanced uncorrected proof from from Penguin, and when I got to the end of the story, I was like, wow, there's still a good three quarter inch of pages here, and then I realized it was all of your citations and your work cited, and it was just uh, it was really impressive. Yeah, I, I just think it's so important to a reader to know that this isn't bogus stuff, that this guy either talked to somebody or got it out of a respectable interview uh, that was in, in a, a magazine or, you know, or in a book that you could really trust. Uh, and anything that you couldn't trust, 
uh, was not included in that. So, uh, look, if you want to stamp the words "the biography" under the name of the uh, the band, you better uh, you better have some proof that you did the work. Yeah. So, anyway. yeah, yeah. I mean, whether it's for Led Zeppelin or Ronald Reagan or Julia Child or whoever it happens to be, right? Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 Uh, this I know this this probably gets into a little bit of the the magic pi pixie dust of storytelling, uh, but you have the transcript, let's say, but, but you don't just plop the transcript into your book. So how do you decide, you know, what passages are you quoting? What are you summarizing? What are you an, uh, anecdotally adding to it? Like, is there any sort of method that you have for that? Yeah, it, it's gotta, it's gotta move the narrative forward. Um, who wants to read a whole transcript? I mean, when I do an interview with somebody, you know, the first 10 minutes, we're just getting cozy. Um, and, you know, they, they tell you a lot of stuff that's just completely useless. Whenever, you know, I had an editor on the Beatles book who said to me, you know, it's, it's a, you knit together gems, little gems, and that's what makes a biography. And so that you, the writer, have to know which is the important information. And, and it's your responsibility to the, to the reader to know, um, that you're not wasting their time, that you're going to uh, entertain them, that you're going to keep the momentum going. And, and so you have to be judicious about what you pick and choose and make sure that you don't take things out of context because then you're not being fair to either the writer or to your source. Right, right. For, for you, um, as, as the author, do you have a certain time of the day where you like to, to work on your books, a certain place? Do you like to use a computer or longhand? What, what's your personal process look like? Yeah. Well, I, I work every day, seven days a week, only from eight to two. At two o'clock, I pack up. It doesn't matter where I am in the story. Uh. Um, I, I feel that uh, the best way to write a book is to have a life um, so that... <laughs> So that you're not toasted every day and so that you have a perspective uh, and you can bring other things to the book beyond the major research. So, um, you know, I figure that I worked every day and at two o'clock I pack up, I go to the store and I cook for two hours uh, because that's what I love to do. But I'll tell you something else that's part of my process and why I write every day. I, I used to have trouble um, coming back to my work if I, if I didn't write regularly. And I watched an interview with Lou Pinella, the Yankees right fielder, about 25 years ago. And they asked him why his batting average wasn't very good that year. And he said, well, they platoon me. That means they only put him in against right-handed pitchers so that he only pitched, he only played every few days. And he said, I just can't get my swing. And it opened up the entire world for me as a writer. I thought to get my swing, I've got to write every day. And if you write every day, you it's, it's like a golfer. You just, you get your swing and it's beautiful. And, and so I only write a certain amount of time. Uh, that's such good advice, isn't it? I mean, uh, writing every day is almost more important than the volume, wouldn't you say? I think so. And then I do one thing before I go to sleep at night. I read what I wrote that day 
Um, and then I go to sleep because I let my subconscious work. And then if, if I had any problems or I didn't know where I was going the next day, when I get up in the morning, I know exactly where I'm headed. And it just, it just works so beautifully for me. Mm. And do you have uh, a particular number of words or pages that you expect to get every day? No. In fact, you know, they always say in your contract that the book should be X amount of words. I will tell you, I have no idea how many words I write. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't ever occur to me. Somebody once said, oh, you know, I have I, I promised them 65,000 words. How many pages do you think that is? I said, I, I don't know, six pages, 60, 600. <laughs> I have no idea. Also, I have no deadline. Uh, and my my uh, editors know this. The book takes as long as the book takes. Now, sometimes that's good. You know, um, most of my books take about four to five years. Um, I spend about two, two and a half years researching and the same amount of time writing. The, the Beatles took eight and a half years. Wow. It was eight and a half years every day. And I, I think my publisher really felt they were never going to get anything from me. And in fact, when they did get it, <laughs> it was 2,800 pages, the manuscript. And I put it on their desk and they looked at it and they said, uh, you know this is unpublishable, right? And then they cut 1,700 word pages from it. Wow. Uh, and, it all, and I didn't rewrite a single word and it just all came together. I was lucky. Uh, I, I don't know how many, you know, I write long books. Um, my books are all, you know, 550 pages up. And I think it, to get into a story, you need background. You need to feel comfortable. You need to melt into it. You need to know where your 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 main your subjects come from. I always say that you don't you can't write about these guys before you know where they come from. Um, and so it takes a while for me to to you know with Led Zeppelin, I felt that I had to write about the blues first. It all began with the blues. Um, before you can figure out what kind of music they were playing. And so to understand Led Zeppelin, you have to understand the Yardbirds and the Rolling Stones. And I felt it was incumbent upon the story to give the reader a little background on this. And, and also what was going on in England post-war with art colleges and where this music grew from. So um, it's all part of the process. And, and Led Zeppelin was not your first biography. Uh, so w what was something that you learned about yourself or something that changed in this project compared to the Beatles or, or Ronald Reagan? Uh, well, very easily with this. Um, and, and there's a, a line I can draw to Reagan, too, that I'll tell you about. Um, when my editor called, he said um, he offered me this book. And I had no idea. Uh, he said, I want you to write about a, a, a band that sold more albums than anyone but than the Beatles. And I couldn't name. I, I knew it wasn't the Stones or the Who. Uh, Elvis, no. Uh, he made me guess. And I went, oh, God, don't tell me he's going to make me write about ABBA. <laughs> uh, and, and then he said it, it was Led Zeppelin. And my heart sunk because I have 20,000 vinyl albums in my collection. <laughs> and I don't have a single Led Zeppelin album. If you would ask me what music they were, did, I might have been able to name Stairway to Heaven and Whole Lot of Love, but that was it. And so um, what amazed me more, what I learned more about this was their music. I had been on the road with Bruce and Elton during 
Led Zeppelin's years. And so their music didn't touch me, nor did their world. Um, and it, it turned out to be the most beneficial thing because uh, I learned it. And I learned it from the, I was like an empty vessel and it filled me up. I had no, uh, I, I, I didn't have any expectations whatsoever. And so it, I, I, I inhaled this enormous catalog of music. And as a musician, I tried to understand everything about it. And if I didn't like to understand John Bonham and what he was doing, I found Carmine Apice, one of the great rock and roll drummers. And he and I listened to the music so that he could explain it to me. And so I guess more than anything uh, in writing this book was learning all about their music and, and what they created and how incredible it was and how I might have dismissed it earlier and missed the whole thing. It was like a real education to me. I loved every minute of it. Yeah, it sounds like you definitely have a growth mindset and you're really interested in learning uh, as, as you're writing. Yeah, I, I just wanted to tell you, I, to draw the connection between this and Reagan, um, when that book was offered to me, I had never voted for a Republican in my entire life. <laughs> and I sure didn't vote for Ronald Reagan twice. <laughs> So, you know, I think sometimes that's better for a writer. You come into it uh, as a learning process uh, and open your mind up to it and, and, and really learn from the ground up. And I think it gives you a perspective that maybe some other people wouldn't have. Yes, very true. Well, Bob, as we, uh, as we kind of pull our conversation to a close, uh, I would love to know if you're willing to share uh, what's next for Bob Spitz. Ah, yes, I'm already deep into it. Uh, <laughs> I am so lucky, having been Dylan's biographer, the Beatles biographer, Led Zeppelin. Um, I just made a deal to be the Rolling Stones biographer. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it's going to be a fabulous project. Uh, it's going to take five or eight years, and uh, and everyone's talking. So it's it's really beautiful. I'm having a great time. Okay, guys, so I, I'm just going to have to back completely out of this conversation so I don't dominate it <laughs> because <laughs> Led Zeppelin is one of my favorite bands of all time, and being able to talk to Bob about about the, the biography was just a highlight of my life. So uh, I, I, I'm just going to shut up. Zach, thoughts? <laughs> what, what's your favorite Led Zeppelin song? Oh, come on. That's like asking me to pick my favorite kid. Okay. Mine is Who's your favorite kid? Oh. <laughs> Mine's uh, Bob O'Reilly off their album Toys in the Attic. Oh, awesome. nice, nice. Uh, that's my that's... favorite dad joke. I love doing that around people, and they're just like, "No, that's they didn't sing that." Anyways, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> no, it was it was awesome. Uh, it was really interesting just hearing the whole process. I mean, uh, eight years <laughs> to I think he said eight years to write the Beatles book, right? And then this one took him several years as well. But I'm really glad you asked him. I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but basically the, uh, you mentioned the scope of the project, like um, of, of having to uh, – where do you start? You know, and, and he talked about, you know, have with Led Zeppelin how important it is to – 
to talk about the blues and all that stuff. And, and what did he say he turned in? Was it that book where he said he turned in like a, a 2,800 page manuscript? I know he said for one of his books, it's it cut uh, down to like 700 or something, right? Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's just crazy. You know, I, I couldn't imagine it's going to be interesting when he does the Rolling Stones, because I mean, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin both had super short careers. I mean, people forget the Beatles only had like an eight year career or something like that, you know, like, but, uh, but yeah, it was it was d- just hearing that whole process and all the due diligence he does, and and he wasn't even familiar with the band. Like that was that was really really interesting too. And and I thought that his spin on that um, was really interesting. How he looked at it, like, well, I'm coming in with fresh eyes and no bias. You know, I thought that was really really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just um, I, I had some flashbacks from back when I used to work in the music business because um, I, I, you know, at the, the end of the 80s and the early 90s, and that's kind of when I was in the thick of this, like the drugs, I think, kind of hit their peak earlier than that. And they were sort of on their way out. But I, I still saw a lot of it. And like, I was always amazed how anybody was actually able to function, like go out on a stage and actually play guitar, remember a set list, remember lyrics, you know, do any of those things. And, and honestly, like, that's the reason I, I never tried any drugs, you know, because I saw so many people that were so messed up, like, you know, when you're sober and you see that, like it just completely turns you off of the the entire process. Um, but what he's doing is extremely difficult because the people in that that community, you know, they're very close knit. You know, for the most part, you know, people like me who see that kind of thing, you know, we typically don't talk about it. You know, so he's got to get somebody to actually open up and you know and actually tell him some you know something that hasn't been heard before. You know, willing to go on the record and put it down on paper, that's difficult. Um, and I, I I've seen people do this before. And you more or less spin, you know, like one story into another. You know, you talk to this one guy, he gives you a little tidbit. You go talk to somebody else who knows about that pit and tidbit and they'll say something like, oh, Bob told you that. Well, wait, let me tell you about this. And and that's kind of how it works. But, you know, for two and a half, three years, you know, to, to run through that process is just a, a lot of work. And I, I can really understand why you had to, to cite everything in the book. Yeah. You know, Led Zeppelin aside, like I, I hope listeners really understood the the incredible writing wisdom that Bob shared, like around habit and around like, you know, getting the words done and writing every day and then finishing um, and going to cook for two hours, um, rereading what he wrote that day just before he goes to bed. I mean, there were just some some golden nuggets of wisdom in this, regardless, you know, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction or about bands or not. Like I could have I could have sat down with Bob for hours and just poked at his process. Yeah, I, I love that you brought that up because I I loved when he brought up like his really strict work hours and how he was like at two o'clock, I'm done. No, Even if I'm in the middle of something, I thought that was awesome. And because um, like I've thought about setting boundaries like that for myself where I'm just, you know, and, and I have some like natural ones because I have days I have to pick up my daughter and stuff like that. But like, I, I don't know, because I especially talking to people on the creator dad, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up is. Uh, you know, how I, I mentioned at my day job, a lot of times I got more writing done because of those time constraints. And I've, I've thought about putting them back on myself a little more strict just to just to see what would happen. I, I love that. I, I love that he does that. And then he, you know, has goes on the rest of his day. And yeah, it was awesome. 
Yeah, honestly, that that structure I think is important to anybody who wants to do this long term. And like, I, I have an alarm that goes off at at two forty five, and that that's my quitting time. That's my my bell, you know, telling me that it's it's time to wrap it up. And you know, just like he said, like I just I'll pick up and just go. Um, and I I try to stay out of my office after that because when you're doing this full time, you know, it, it's so easy to get you know a little idea and like oh, I'll just run in there and put that down. I'll do this. I'll do that. Um, honestly, like having a daughter, I think is what really changed a lot of that for me. Um, yeah, because I I. I want to make that time. You know, I, I don't want to miss anything. All these little things that are happening. Like, I don't want to be the absentee father. I want to be there and, and see it. Um, and so it was very important for me to, to strike that balance. But I think just as, you know, business practice, just to stay sane, just to be able to do this kind of thing long term, you do need to have that kind of structure, or at least some type of structure in, in there and turn it into something that resembles a real job. Yeah, I loved his the, the way he talked about the was it the golfer swing or was it the bat the batter the batter yeah. swing right about yeah if you're if you're not if you're not going through the reps consistently you get out you get out of the zone you get out of rhythm and and that's a very real that's a, a, a very real thing and I think that it, not that we, we didn't necessarily touch on it in the interview but it also reinforced for me this idea that uh, being self-employed you end up working a lot more than you do for the man. <laughs> <laughs> because when you're your own boss, it's it's hard to it's hard to stop working. It's hard to to put things away when it's just right there, and you're really and and you're also loving it, and you're really passionate about it. But like having those boundaries is still really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though it's something that's fun and it's something that's enjoyable, you know, you you, you still need to to set that um, because I, I think you tend to work even more just simply because of that. You know, it's something that is fun. It's something that you want to do. It's something we were all doing, you know, as, as just a side project or a hobby before. You know, you, you just gravitate towards that in your free time. And now all of a sudden it's not your free time. It's your work time. Um, I know a lot of people that pick up, you know, new hobbies, you know, when they, they start writing full time, they take up golf or they take up something else just to, to fill that void. Um, because otherwise, you, you it's very easy to find yourself doing, you know, 60, 80 hours a week with without any trouble. You know, just every waking moment you're behind that desk. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually in that place right now where. I've kind of been trying to think of like a different hobby to, to take on that's not related to writing at all. Like I've thought about taking up cooking, for instance, just to have something different to do. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is I think that that's super important. Any other big takeaways or things that you guys got from from the interview? Honestly, I got chills when he brought up, you know, when he first met Bruce Springsteen. Like, just imagine being in a, a studio or a conference room at a, at a record label and, you know, this guy just breaking his guitar out and going, let me just play something for you. And, and it, it's Springsteen, <laughs> you know, like that that must have been in, incredible. Um and I've heard those kind of stories before. And like when I was at the record label, like I, I was in some of those kind of conference rooms and like, you know, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Like you could see a hundred people walk through that conference room and they do nothing for you. You completely forget about them the second they walk through, out that door. Um, but then there's that one, you know, that, that shows up and you just, everybody in the room lights up, their pens go down, whatever they're, they're doing off on the side. They just focus 100% on that person. And you know, they've got that, that X factor or whatever it is, but wow, to, to be there for, for Springsteen, like that's, that's insane. Yeah, and, and then to go on to manage Elton John after that. <laughs> like, shout, shout out to my shout out to my wife who uh, several years ago was like seconds away from meeting Robert Plant, and then uh, he got mobbed, <laughs> so he he left the store she was working in. So <laughs> I, had to, I had to bring that up for her on here because that she still hates it to this day. So <laughs> that she didn't get to meet him, but. 
Well, Bob said he's working on Rolling Stones next. So, and I guess about 10 years when he wraps that one up, we, we definitely need to have him back on here. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really <laughs> Hey, they'll still be touring. So. Yeah, I'm sure they will. He said he had 20,000 albums in his record collection. Like, I would love to just see that, you know, just a picture. <laughs> you know, just a, I, I, it's funny. I, I went into Walmart the other day. I was getting my oil changed. And like, you can do that at Walmart up here. I don't know if it's like that everywhere, but you know, I had to wander the store for like a half hour. Um, and, you know, it's funny what's kind of disappeared since the last time I've done that like I went over to the music section and there was like one shelf of CDs like hard hardly anything but then there were like four or five shelves of vinyl you know and like yeah. and record players like it, I didn't realize it was coming back to the point where you know like that was happening but I just I thought that oh was yeah it's cool. vinyls are real like yeah it's pretty pretty I mean pretty big so my yeah. Walmart I was there the other day they had two JD Barker books did they? So. Did you buy them both for me? No. <laughs> you, you at least, you at least if I'm them? buying your books, it's not going to be a Walmart. <laughs> Next time, at least sign them for me. That's what I do. I just go into the Walmart and sign JD's books for him. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I sign them with all my love, Zach Bohannon. <laughs> oh, man. All right. With that, uh, let's look ahead to next week. What do we got, J.D.? Uh, next week, we've got Gary Grossman and Ed Fuller. Um, so they're the co-authors of a, a series. Uh, one of the books is Red Hotel. The other one is Red Deception. Um, this should be pretty interesting because Gary is actually a, a former television producer and a journalist, and, and, and now he, he's turned novelist. And he's worked at NBC, ABC, CBS, PBS. I, I think his bio said 36 different cable networks. Um, so he's been around the block from that standpoint. And Ed, Ed Fuller is the retired president of Marriott. Um, the hotel chain. So I, I really want to hear how these two guys got together and decided to write some thrillers um, as you know, co-authors. This is, it should be an interesting talk. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.